Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to episode two of the Julius Caesar episodes or series for The Play is the Thing. I'm Matt Bianco, and I am here with Heidi the White <laughs> and Brian B.P. Phillips. Um, hello. I just made up nicknames for both of you. Yes, I you love did. it. That um, was great. Well, enough of that small talk and banter. So <laughs> earlier, Brian mentioned to me that there was some topic that he wanted to discuss, and he said, and I quote, I just don't know how we would bring this question up. I do know how we're going to bring this question up. Listen closely. Hey, guys, how do you prepare for these episodes? <laughs> that was amazing. That was really skilled leadership there, Matt. Thank so you. So natural. The, the king of transitions. Yes. <laughs> so, ladies first, Heidi, how is it that you prepare for a discussion of a Shakespeare play, whether it be one you're recording on the Plays of Thing podcast or one you're having with your bestest of friends? Right. Um, I assume you guys friends would be. I do have friends, and we do talk about (laughs) sometimes. So, um, I am a preparer. I I really like to get ready for these podcasts, and I so I do read the play uh, one act at a time. I don't. I usually only read one act for each episode, so I don't read like the whole play before, unless I haven't read it before. And a lot of times I'll also watch a performance of it if there's one on film. And then I do love, and most of our listeners know this, if you've listened to me on the plays thing before, I love Shakespeare commentaries. I have a whole shelf full of them. It is a hobby for me. So I, I will pull out my Shakespeare commentaries and read what people have to say and take notes. And uh, so I, I do like to prepare for these and then um, also kind of hold that loosely and be willing to change my mind as things come up. But I do tend to prepare more of it on a literary level than more of a historical one. Like, so I, I'd still learn from other people's perspectives. 
When I came into the office today, Brian was reading Gibbons' um, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire in preparation. I've never read that. I've never read that in my life. I should read it because everyone quotes it. That's one of those, you're not really educated until you're familiar with it. So I'm, I'm still uneducated. Not like Brian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brian is very educated. So how do you prepare, Brian? Uh, apparently. I, I ask the questions around here. <laughs> apparently I prepare by reading Edward Gibbons' Fall of the Roman Empire. But I wasn't actually doing that. Matt's lying. I have, I have read, not all of it by any means, but I've read parts of it, but that's was not in preparation for this podcast. Um, I think for me, well, preparing for this podcast in particular uh, is more just looking back over the text. I don't, um, if I'm doing an interview for a podcast, then yes, I write notes and questions and all that. But um, for these, I just have my book. <laughs> my copy of Julius Caesar, one of my copies of Julius Caesar. Um, I've been fortunate this time around because our our kids are learning lines from Julius Caesar and studying the play in their homeschool co-op. So we've actually just recently watched the uh, Charlton Heston version mm-hmm. of it, the, um, the movie, the play. And um, so it's all pretty fresh in my mind, but for podcasts that we're doing on particular books. I don't, I don't have a particular rule of thumb, but I tend to just bring the book with me, uh, and not, not take too many notes, uh, and just sort of, I feel like it roots me in the text a little more, but mm-hmm. some of that, I have to be flexible with that depending on my familiarity with the work. What about you, Matt? I, I just stayed at a holiday and express the night before. Oh, that, that's how I prepare. That, I feel like you were just waiting for that question to come at you so you could drop that. That's shit. the only reason he mentioned this question. <laughs> I well, fair enough. I did not even think of that, but I got to add that to my preparation <laughs> liturgy. I prepare for books and Shakespeare plays differently. If it's a book, I just read it very slowly, slowly and closely, and just the section that we're going to discuss. Yeah. I mean, not that I've had the need to do that because I've never been on close reads to discuss a book, but mm, that was subtle. But I have friends. You do have friends. I have. I have a friend. You tell yourself that out loud every day in the office, and that person—it's a little sad when they're not mad at me. Will <laughs> let me talk about books with them. No, um, for the Shakespeare <laughs> plays, I read. I try to read the whole play cover to cover in. Um, in in one or two sittings, like the the week week or two before the before we do the recordings, and then I will watch a version of it if 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 I can get access to one, mm-hmm. um, or if I if there's somebody putting it on live, then go see it, which I did for Julius Caesar. I had to go all the way to Nashville, Tennessee, for it, and it was worth it. Then just for this podcast, just for this podcast, <laughs> I don't believe that. That's not true. I did other stuff while I was oh. there, workshops. <laughs> um, then. The day of the recording, I read that act, the act that we're going to discuss, and I take notes. Um, and then, and then when we get on the call together in that moment, then I say, "Hey, what questions should we discuss?" Hmm. I don't come. I don't pre. I don't pre-identify questions. Hmm. Wow, you guys are just really smart, quick-thinking people. I think I'm a bit of a slow thinker. <laughs> take have to. I'm like a ruminator, a brooder. It's not so, a, a brooder. Oh, yeah. that's so important. I want to talk about brooding <laughs> on the next episode in Act yeah. 3. Well, we see some brooding in this act for yeah. sure. So maybe that was a good transition to actually talking about that the play. Um, I don't know. 
Well, before we transition, though, I I do think it's important to bring up what I believe both of you mentioned. And I, I mean, I know I'd mentioned it, but um, so maybe it was all three of us then That's that the if you can number to go to. <laughs> yes. If you can uh, watch a performance of a play, it's far better than just reading it. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I think we forget that because we regard Shakespeare as great literature, but we forget that he was writing plays. So it's not so much that he was intended to be read as much as seen. Um, mm-hmm. and yes. You, yes. Uh, and I think, at least in my experience with students and my myself too, but particularly for students, I've noticed that they may have a hard time picturing what's going on because the language is different, the culture is is different and so on the points of reference are different um but if you can see it acted out then it makes so much more sense the story is easier to follow the characters are easier to understand and so i would really encourage teachers homeschool parents or or people just studying shakespeare themselves i mean just watch it Mm -hmm. on on youtube even you can find Mm -hmm. really good performances uh, it's not the same as seeing it live, but it's better than just reading it, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say on that, but particularly in light of what we discussed on the last episode, um, that I, I absolutely watch it. Uh, recordings, live, whatever you can get your hands on, uh, possibly even audio. But, but, or and, yet, remember with Shakespeare in particular... Um, but especially here with Julius Caesar, what you brought up last week, which is, or last episode, which is that sometimes Caesar, for example, can be read one of two ways. If you Mm -hmm. think of him as a good person, then he's going to sound different than if you assume he's a tyrant and an ambitious man. And so you go back to that scene in act one, scene two, when he's talking to Antony during the race and he says, and I'm not a very good actor, so bear with me here, but if he's a good person and he just wants to have a son then or a child, then you can hear him say something like, forget not in your speed, Antonius, to touch Calpurnia. For our elders say the baron touch it in this holy chase, shake off their sterile curse. And there's this kind of pleading for, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I just, I want to be a father. Or you could read him as the tyrant and hear him say something like forget not in your speed Antonius to touch Calpurnia for our elders <laughs> say the Baron touched in this Holy chase, shake off their sterile curse. Right. And, um, I said, I, I told you I'm not a good actor, but almost more of a Henry the eighth kind of, <laughs> I need a son. <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> but, but, but if you go, so if you go watch this live or you go watch, or you watch this in a recording, you're going to get one or the other, but you mm. need to remember there's the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, well, and particularly, I think that's true, Matt, and particularly in a play like this in which rhetoric plays such a central role mm. in interpreting the motivations of the characters. In, in performing any Shakespeare play, there's ambiguity. Uh, yeah. And But in this play, the words themselves carry such weight to the action of the story. People are constantly persuading other characters to do something that has real consequences in the play. And so uh, and so actors make interpretive choices. And so m- watching multiple performances of the same play 
is, I think, a huge part of studying Shakespeare and then performing it yourselves in the classroom or even in a reader's theater if you're just at home um, that forces the students to make interpretive choices in how they read the play out loud. And I often will make my students read from different perspectives. Hey, read this as though Brutus were an honorable man. Read this as though Brutus were Mm. uh, deceived. Read that in different ways. And that those multiple interpretations in performance, whether professional or just in the classroom or at home, really take the readers into the heart of the play. So I think what you're saying is really important and we can do it ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you bring up a really good point about the the play in general, but, but, but it, especially, well, every act, um, which is this, this role of rhetoric and the role of persuasion. And act two has a couple of very, to me, very memorable scenes where persuasion is attempted and fails. Mm -hmm. And I really want to talk about those failures because they come from the women Mm -hmm. and the there's, I I don't not not saying there's necessarily a connection between women and failed rhetoric, but um, that was just accidental. The, you probably shouldn't even have pointed that out. (laughs) Don't edit that out because that's actually really important. That's important what you just said. So this is really the the only act. This is the only act where we really get to talk. We could really, we can really talk about the women at length and in great Mm -hmm. detail. I don't want to miss that opportunity here. So, so you have, you have Calpurnia. Well, first I guess you have Portia trying Mm -hmm. to persuade Brutus to let her in on what's going on so that she can advise him. Yeah. And then, or at least relieve him of some of the burden. And then you have Calpurnia uh, trying to persuade Caesar to not go to the Senate mm-hmm. because she has a bad feeling about it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, she seems to there, know something that he does. All of these omens, including yes. her own dreams, but all of these omens are going on throughout Rome, and she's pleading with him to to pay attention to them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. So what, do, what do we need to think about with these? What do we need to understand about the women that these two in particular, and then perhaps maybe why they fail or their husbands and what their their husbands' role in why they fail? Well, right. let's let's do some comparison then. Good. I mean, Portia and Calpurnia are similar in that they're both wives who are looking out for the best interests of their husbands and right. trying to trying to give them someone to lean on when they both perceive that it's needed. Hmm. That's one, a couple of very important similarities, I think. Yeah. Right. So, so for Portia, it's lean on me, help me, let me help. When uh, you're not strong. <laughs> um, to help relieve your friend. burden. When it's Calpurnia, it's blame me so that you don't appear mm-hmm. weak. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that you, Uh, I think that the fact that their rhetoric fails absolutely does have something to do with the fact that they're women and not, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for a feminist interpretation of this act because I just don't think that fits. Said every Um, feminist ever trying to move a feminist (laughs) interpretation on an act. But Portia draws attention in, which scene is it? Um, Um, Portia's in scene four. Scene four. Yes. So, and, Right. But I'm, this is to your point about womanhood and failed rhetoric, uh, that in scene four, she refers over and over again to the fact that she is 
she is powerless to stop what's about to happen because she is a Roman wife, because she is a woman. And um, that is important, I think, because it draws attention to this idea of Romanness in the play. Um, That the, the reality is... In, in this scene in which there's a lot of vacillation, excuse me, this act, act two, there's a lot of vacillation. There's building action towards the death of Caesar, but nothing irrevocable has happened yet, right? The, the play or the, the act, I, get, I keep saying play scene and act all wrong, but the <laughs> act opens up with Brutus brooding, right? He's standing, he can't sleep. He has insomnia. Again, kind of the wisdom that happens at night. In this play, the day is associated with a new day for Rome, which of course fails. Uh, but and night is the place where omens happen, where the supernatural happens, where there's some kind of mystical wisdom that's imparted to the characters, and it's imparted to the women who can do nothing about it. Um, mm. Which mm. reminds me of Cassandra yeah. in the mythology. Same exact name Man, in our heads. Yes. Just beat me to it. Yes. <laughs> so we were all thinking of the same thing. Right. Right. Uh, so this idea that women do have some kind of connection to the supernatural. Mm-hmm and first access to it, but they are powerless to accomplish it. Whereas the men are blinded by their vision for the day, right? They want the new day for Rome. They want this political reality and they have the power, but they do not have the wisdom. So there's a disconnection there. Uh, And I think it's very purposeful that both of these women have these omens importance in this act and both of them are ignored Cassandra-like. So is it important then to this to this um, this motif of dark and light for you in Act Two, Scene One? That uh, is, let I me, mean, yeah, the very first thing that Brutus does is notice the progress of the stars. Mm-hmm. Needs to know how near we are today. Yes, and then wakes up Lucius and says, "Get me light. Get me absolutely." A Yes, that's very important. I think Lucius is an important character. Uh, oh, his name too is Lucius. Yes, <gasps> light, light. And so what we have here is the men, the conspirators coming, persuading Brutus, who is kind of talking himself. He has an opportunity to say no through Portia, right? And anytime he kind of turns to, if you go through the stage directions, which Shakespeare gives very minimal stage directions. And so when he does, they're very important. So when Brutus kind of starts to second guess, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe it's not as noble as I thought it was. Maybe I should listen to the personal, my friendship with Caesar and my wife's opportunity to give me comfort. Both of those times he's interrupted by knocking as the stage direction, the knocking of the conspirators at the door at the dawn and the break of day. And I think this is entirely key to how we're supposed to, and I use that phrase, perceive Brutus. He has an opportunity to turn away and he doesn't take it. Hmm. And it's through Lucius, the young boy who's bringing him the light, you know, some, there are some commentators, some scholars who think Lucius kind of represents childhood innocence, um, or is a son figure to, um, Brutus the same way that Brutus is kind of a son to Caesar. Um, so, but he's, 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 I think he's very important 
in this scene as an opportunity to kind of go back to innocence. And Portia, of course, is the, if he was to confide in her, there's an opportunity that she might persuade him that this isn't a good idea. I think that's, that's really interesting, particularly when paired with a passage that uh, I thought we were going to go to earlier, hmm. line 291, act, okay. two, act two, scene one. Okay, you'll be happy to know that I do indeed have line numbers in my book. So Good, that was this. a test. Yes. <laughs> only reason I brought it up. No, um, Portia here is trying to convince Brutus to talk to her to confide in her. And, uh, she says, uh, well, I'll just start with it. Basically Brutus has once again refused to, uh, to confide in her. And she says, if this were true, then should I know this secret? That is, if I'm your true and honorable wife, then you Mm -hmm. should tell me, I grant I'm a woman, but with all a woman that Lord Brutus took to wife, I grant I'm a woman, but with all a woman, well reputed Cato's daughter, Thank you. I'm no longer, uh, I'm sorry, uh, no stronger than my sex being so fathered and so husbanded. It's interesting to me that here we have Brutus um, going back and forth, vacillating, Mm -hmm. as you said, between whether to take part in the conspiracy or not. And she steps in to and, and reminds him, appeals to the wisdom that he has had in one, choosing her as a bride, right? right? but also um, reminding him of her heritage, which is so Mm. firmly a part of Rome's good, right? Mm. I mean, she's Cato's daughter. So she's appealing to the wisdom that he has shown in the past um, and the wisdom that he knows of already to talk to her, to confide in her. In other words, stop, um, boxing me out of this, you know, keeping me out of this and actually confide in me. Um, so the way that she appeals, I think is, is interesting in that, um, she appeals to him in, in a sense, she appeals to him as a fellow Roman. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is is she trying to kind of unsex herself a little bit there? It's not, I mean, I, de-emphasize her femininity. Yes. It's not a lady Macbeth scene. There's a lot of parallels between this scene and the temptation of Macbeth, but the knocking, for example, uh, the wife, but she is trying to persuade him to virtue, whereas Lady Macbeth is tempting him. And so I think she's more appealing to, uh, to her femininity and her role, her office, again, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot. The idea that I am your wife, I am the daughter of Cato, um, and I, I am a Roman like you. Please confide in me because of my office as your wife, and I have shown myself constant to you. Whereas Lady Macbeth, I think, was inverting her sexuality, um, her gender, and trying to minimize it. I think Hmm. Portia is elevating it. Well, that's if you've drawn the conclusion that the conspirators should not kill Caesar. Right. Yes, that's true. Which is obviously a the uh, question, right? What would be the other t- uh, interpretation no, 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 of Portia no, 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 no. then here? Back up, though. Back up. 
And she knows what their conspiracy conspiracy is. Right. If she doesn't know what their conspiracy is, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad right. when she's doing what she's doing. At this point, she's just saying, talk to me. Right. 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 Because right. right. she could, if he talked to her, she could say, whoa, bad idea. Mm-hmm. If it's a bad thing, right? Or if it's mm-hmm. a good thing, you can say, okay, yes, but here's what you need to do. To do right. it right. To be just. Right. Right. Well, and what... Is is there a way to interpret Portia? I mean, this is a real question. Is there a way to interpret Portia negatively in this scene? Or is overstepping? I think not, but I'm curious what you all think. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I, no, I don't think so. I mean, unless she she stabs herself on stage and it's, she's not referring to a previous wound, then that's weird. But Well, yeah. Well, also, and that's a big theme of the book. I mean, of the play, though. We're going to get to the suicide stuff in, as we move on. The idea of self-harm as a political and personal stance is very important to this play. Well, the, it, coming back to Matt's question about whether this is an echo of Lady Macbeth, mm-hmm. um, when you know the stabbing herself in the thigh, I don't know that lend that does lend itself a little bit more to that kind of Macbethy. Yeah, yeah, it certainly feels more that way. But she says, I have made strong proof of my constancy, giving myself a voluntary wound here in the thigh, which could be referring back to some previous incident mm-hmm. where she had to prove to him that she wouldn't give in to torture or something. Mm-hmm. Or, but sometimes some, some players will they act this out on stage, right? They right. have her stab herself. Yeah. And also, something that gets kind of left out, and going back to the comparison, because it's not explicitly expressed is that that a lot of people believe that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. That the sickness that he refers to, that she should not be coming out of doors at night or out of bed at night, is she's pregnant. And it right. would be a contrast to Calpurnia, who's explicitly being described very early on as being sterile. Mm-hmm. Um, she cannot produce an heir. And here we have, we have Portia, who apparently is producing an heir. Um, but it never says explicitly that she's pregnant so some people don't like the most recent production i saw the one in nashville um she was not pregnant in that one but others Mm -hmm. i've seen she's pregnant i've always thought of her as pregnant in that scene right me too me too well two to one brian loser (laughs) (laughs) i I abstain (laughs) so in in act two just to set the stage we've got brutus trying to decide what to do. Portia's trying brooding to get him to, yeah, to him. Brutus is brooding. Bum, bum, um, bum. <laughs> uh, Portia's trying to convince him to confide in her. Mm-hmm. And as Heidi mentioned, every time he has this opportunity to seek counsel or to change yeah. his mind, he's interrupted. And at about um, midway through act one, the conspirators arrive. Yeah, right. he he's so weird, Who? like Brutus, Brutus, because he doesn't listen to the women. Although he he acts like he's going to. I mean, he yeah. intends to. It appears that doesn't listen to the woman who would probably get, be giving him the best counsel. Mm-hmm. And, and and in order to do that, he has to he listens to the men. Right? It's right. it's his it's his willingness to listen to the men that causes him to disregard his wife. So then you get this listening to the men, but then when he's actually in a conversation with the men, he doesn't listen to them either. 
He doesn't. Right? Like I, Cassius is all the time saying, no, let's not do it that way. Let's do it this other way. Yeah. And Brutus is like, no, man, I got this. Yep. Well, That's and very significantly. Oh, go ahead. You, In line 140, he says, no, man, I got this. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> he actually, that is right at 140. Did you say that on purpose? Pretty much um, that no, is what it Okay. So let me read you what happens at line 140. Which, uh, which scene? See, whatever that, scene one. Also, do you have the real line numbers or the fake ones that Brian has? Like earlier when I, I Brian said it was lines 290, but it was actually 314 because his folio it's, edition is different than you mine. You must have, I, well, in line 140, what? I have Cassius saying, but what of Cicero? Me too. My, so we my have folio the, edition. Now, now we're that's, at two to one. That's Sign like line classic. 152 in mine because I'm using the Folgers. Folgers? Folgers, okay. Shakespeare Library. Yeah. You never buy anything named Folgers. Not books, not coffee, 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 coffee. Oh, man. Yep. All so right. Well, line 152 I, for the pretty rest much of the He says, nah, man, I got this right around line 40. <laughs> Cassius says, but what if Cicero, shall we sound him? I think he will stand very strong with us. Shall we recruit Cicero, who is just as respected, if not more than Brutus? And Casca, let us not leave him out, blah, blah, blah. And Brutus says, oh, name him not. This is now line 149. Oh, name him not. Let us not break with him for he will never follow anything that other men begin so at this I don't, point I don't like brutus brutus is i mean to go back to what we talked about that last week and my my own interpretation of this which other people have others i think that at this point he is corrupted he wants to be the leader of this conspiracy yes. he wants to be seen as noble he doesn't want yes. anybody who is equally respected as him to be involved Amen. And so I, at this point, he's saying, no, man, I got this. I don't want Cicero. I don't want anybody else. This is, he's fully owned this and been corrupted at this point. And then his second chance is mm. with Portia. Well, don't skip out though. I mean, hold, let me just pause for a second there. Cassius says, let's, let's ask Cicero. And then you get Casca, Cinna, and Metalis, whatever. All three yep. of them are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get him in. And Metalis right. even gives a good, a really good reason for it. And he then does. Brutus says, no, overrules the four of them. And then Cassius says, then leave him out. And yep. then Casca, nope, he's not fit. And then Decius, well, Decius changes the subject, I guess. But like, they're, like it's weird how quickly they fall into line with, with, with Brutus. With, yep. It, and I think he's enjoying this right now. Perhaps they sense it. Since what? That his need to be the leader. And if they <sighs> if they try to overrule him, then he's out and they need him. Huh. Like they sense the very thing you're saying, right? Uh -huh. His pride is on display in that moment. He it will is. never follow anything that I begin. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, right, that other men begin. And then Cassius and da Casca perhaps are thinking, okay, we better go along with this guy or we're gonna or he's gonna back mm -hmm. up. Right. Well, I mean that. I don't, I guess I never really thought of this moment as being when Brutus really buys in. Um, I, I need to give some more thought to that, but it is interesting that that's the very thing that Casca appealed to very early on in his his first interaction with Brutus mm -hmm. about the, the plot. Anyway, is that he? You know, he um, at least in the the play, um, it's often shown where he writes the name Caesar where it's written on the wall and he marks it out and he writes the name Brutus and he speaks, mm -hmm. you know, why should the name Caesar be spoken um, any higher than, than Brutus? Right. Um, yeah. 
he even asked him to say the names together. You know, (laughs) do they not sound as, uh, are they not both as wonderful? Um, So he plays to his pride early on. Right. Well, in his moral pride, I think that's really important about Brutus is in some ways, Brutus is the true Roman stoic, right? So this, this idea that even, even the, what look like honorable decisions coming up here that Brutus makes, if, if you, if the, if a reader is interpreting it through that he has been corrupted at this point, he shouldn't have killed Caesar. Right? If that's the interpretation of the play, then what we're seeing is evidence not of him being honorable, but of him being morally prideful, doing what he's doing to serve his pride and then kind of couching it in moral high ground. Right? Like, oh, let's go ahead and let Antony make a speech. Like, aren't I so honorable? So that that is one way to interpret Brutus that I think fits throughout the whole play. You can also look at him as, as he's caught up in circumstances beyond his control. He really is trying to do the right thing and then it just turns out bad. That is another way to interpret him. But I think that there's some things in scene two that undermine that. Yeah. So are, are there other things in um, scene one that we need to talk about? I mean, we've... Um, Let's and don't forget where you were going to try to go before I paused you to stop here. I don't remember well, that. They, but they do agree. They do agree that, <laughs> well, once again, I guess kind of to the same point, Brutus insists, uh, even against the counsel of some of the conspirators, he insists that they not kill Mark Antony. Right. That yeah. they only kill Caesar. Um, that line, let us be sacrificers, but not butchers. Right. Um, let's kill him boldly, but not wrathfully. They don't want to be seen as overdoing it. They don't want to be seen as, uh, they, they want the, the Roman people ground. to, yeah. yeah, they want the Roman people to understand that they were doing this for the good of Rome, not out of some jealousy or just sheer wrath. Right. This is kind of blowing my mind a little bit because. I had, I had, I think I said this on the last episode, but I, I've seen a production where they portrayed Caesar very sympathetically. Mm-hmm. So, so for a long time, I've thought of this play as being, um, you know, the way we talked about it last week, where you can you can see him as a tyrant or mm-hmm. or a, a tyrant in wait in waiting, or um, or just a, a good guy who's trying to do the right thing with regard to Caesar. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'd not ever really thought of Brutus being anything other than just there's one Brutus. Huh. And, and just, just now in this scene, even here, like with the discussion about Antony, there's a sense in which you could read it as he's trying to be honorable here. I don't want to make this a blood, you know, a bloodbath. Right. A bloodbath. Yeah. Yeah. The way he described Even it. Even though it literally is it, when they... Well, anyway, and they literally, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Jumping uh, ahead. Jumping ahead. Then... But then there's this flip side where it's like, it's like he could, you could read it as him saying, Anthony's not worth it. Yeah. I think like, yeah, I'm, I'm the man and there's only one other man that's comparable to me. And that's the only one I need to bother myself with. Everybody else is nothing compared to me and we don't even need to bother with them. Right. In fact, I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to let him speak, but he ha- with my permission, mm-hmm. like, Right, like I'm not saying those are all necessarily negative things that he's saying, but but even here you could read Brutus either way. You could, if you think of him as a good guy, you can read those words as very honorable. 
um, perhaps naive, but honorable. But if you see him as somebody who is given into his own pride, then you could read all of these words as, as embodiments of his pride, his pride coming right. out. So it's, I, it, so Brutus is essentially another Caesar, right? Another one of those characters where right. as a reader, as a, as a member of the audience, you're having to go back and forth. Yeah. I wonder what he's really thinking. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which that is why Shakespeare is so, I mean, just remarkable, remarkable playwright because of this, this, this tension between the public man and the private man and the tension between what is the true motivation of this action. And does that, I think it's also a mistake to say if Brutus is giving into pride, therefore he's the villain of the play. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that is a, it it just, I think it adds to the humanity and the pathos of the tragedy of Brutus, that he is a good man who's been corrupted here. Um, And, and he thinks of himself as honorable. And yet the first temptation to power, he takes it, he seizes it, which again, to what you both just said, what makes him different from Caesar then? Right. Because it's the very thing they're accusing Caesar of, right? Yes. So the the temptation to power, political power, which is the only Roman reality. They and and I think Shakespeare gets this right in this play that there is not a that there is no Christian overtones to Julius Caesar. He Hmm. gets that right. This is a very the the for lack of a better word, the worldview of this play is entirely Roman. What? Political is the only reality here. No, Shakespeare got, gets that. that. So to us as Christians, we <laughs> see something going. more. We see something more. Of course we do. But within yeah. the play mm-hmm. to the psyche of the characters, that's what is real. And that's what's ultimate. I might buy that. Maybe. I'll think about it. Well, she's right. How is Brutus Hector? <laughs> How is Brutus like Hector? In this act. Uh, the protectiveness of his people and of his city, fully integrated into his community. Um, the the hero that everyone is looking to. Willing to go along with a stupid idea, even if it costs him his yeah, life. exactly. Because they both have wives who try to stop them from going into the battle. Right. This is a great comparison. I love this, Matt. Yeah. But, and, and Hector says, I can't not go. They're, they're and he's both. he's right, I guess, yeah, to say that. They're, they're both taking part in fights that they did not originally start. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Right. Casca is like Paris. Yeah. Right. <laughs> let, me go, <laughs> let me go cause some trouble and then get my brother involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a lot of similarities, um, but obviously the great tragedy of Brutus is that he's not killing an enemy. He's killing within his society. The same the sin difference. that Caesar committed. Right. Yes, it's that's it's, it would be as if Hector was killing Priam in order to save the city or Paris in order to save the city. I'm going to sacrifice Paris because he's the one who brought Helen here. That's which, the parallel. Which, by the way, I think would be a very boring play because everyone would be like, yeah, just kill him. Go for it. Please so, do. God, yes. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, but that would, make, that would make Mark Antony Achilles. Well, then. Which Guys, is also is, a very interesting. We're going to get parallel. another fire emoji for this episode. Yeah. I think. We're not going to get. We, we can't. We don't. We can't tip it. We can't 
dip into Mark Antony in Act Two. It's too soon. Too soon. We need to focus on the wives and Fine. Julius Caesar and Brutus. So I can, like this line of Should question. we go on to scene two? Yeah. 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 Now we're at Caesar's. No, yeah, because now we get to the other wife, right? right. Now we have Calpurnia and then the uh with the Calpurnia and the augurs and then yeah. the uh men, the conspirators. And get- notice as as Heidi mentioned earlier, the stage directions are important, right? The mm-hmm. first words you mean thunder, as Heidi claimed earlier. Thunder. <laughs> thunder and lightning. Mm-hmm. That's right. Julius Caesar in his nightgown. Oh, Caesar. Still attached to the night. Right. Mm-hmm. That's know. right. The portents, the omens happening at night through the the women, through the woman character in the play who is ignored in favor of political expediency and mm-hmm. image. Same thing. The parallels yeah. between Brutus and Caesar continue in this scene. Very true. Um, what's interesting about, I find Caesar reading this through the, uh, the eyes of what if I did see Caesar as a very sympathetic character, this scene is really sad in that case because it, it, he, and he's torn, right? He's asking for signs and then he ignores the signs. He does have the soothsayer's prophecy, the Ides of Moore. So he gets the augurs and they slaughter the animal and there's no heart found in the animal, which, you know, a science. So that kind of, but there's, (laughs) um, and, and so of course the interpretation is don't go to the Senate. You should listen to the soothsayer. And he ignores it. And then his wife comes out with these, with this description of these dreams that she has and begs him to stay home. And he agrees just to please her. And then the political yeah. pressure changes his mind. So I'm, I'm very curious what you guys think about Caesar's actions here. Is he motivated because he's convinced by Decius' stupid argument? Or is he motivated because Decius said they were going to offer him the crown in the Senate? Uh, that's a tough one for me. I, I, yeah, my, my gut reaction is to say that what he's really motivated by, I'm, I'm kind of splitting the difference here choosing, mm-hmm. choosing the third way. Um, I feel like what Caesar's motivated by is not being embarrassed by having to say, I'm not going because my wife had nightmares. Uh-huh. I'm not going because, um, too much weird stuff has been happening and it's not a good day. Right. He, he doesn't want to be thought of as being effeminate. He doesn't want to be thought of as being scared. And so he's willing to listen to um, DCS. He's willing to ignore his wife. He's willing to ignore all of these signs, all of these omens. And because, uh, um, let's see, it's, it's Decius who says around line 100, well, 95, um, <laughs> besides it were a mock app to be rendered for someone to say, break up the Senate till another time when Caesar's wife shall meet with better dreams. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be what clinches it. Yep. The next thing Caesar says is how foolish do your fears seem now, Calpurnia? Right. Well, n- <laughs> no, they're not. They're no more foolish now just because Decius said, what will people say? Right. You know, when when they find out Caesar actually listened to his wife, 
Right. You know, that seems to be what clinches it, I think. Um, and the, there's still the question too of, which is not to disagree with you at all, but but to think of it as well from the perspective of how much of this is him referring to himself as Julius the man and how much of this is a concern for Caesar the office. Yeah. The role, that's right? True. That's true. So right. it's, it's right. Caesar can't be governed by a, a woman's foolish dreams or be mocked for a woman's foolish dreams or whatever. But maybe Julius, the yeah. husband could have, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. So I don't know how before his, his person, I don't understand the office of Caesar at this point in the history of the Republic or in the history of Rome. So I don't know how much of that is an office. Yeah person thing well i mean technically at this point he's still a console mm-hmm. it's just that he's the only one left so think of it in terms of um, well was caesar a title at this point or was it still a name at this point um well in the play it, it apparently was a title right right i yeah that historically this, i don't think that had happened yet but right anyway that's beside the point so but in the play he, he it is wants us to think of it as a title yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But see, I like Brian's interpretation of if he is, because it adds this pathos to it, right? That if he doesn't want to be embarrassed, mm-hmm. then he's actually making the decision to destroy himself as a private person, as a human person, when he's. And and I think I have to accept Brian's because and this, I'm thinking through this for the first time now. I have to think that it's because he's embarrassed because if he was thinking of his office, he would be listening to all these signs, right? Yes, I. Uh, no, I don't understand why that follows. Go okay, on. well, there's one particular part where, as his wife is going through all of these signs, uh, starting around line 15. Uh, Calpurnia tells him, I've never been overly superstitious. I've never, mm-hmm. how does she say? I never stood on ceremonies, yet now they right. find me. And she goes through all of these different omens. A lioness whelped in the streets, graved have yawned. There were dead men resurrected and walking around. Um, fierce, fiery warriors fought upon the clouds in ranks and squadrons in right form of war. Drizzled blood upon the capital. Um, so there are all these really strange things happening in the heavens, yeah. right? Which also is it's a constant theme. Um, and he says, these predictions are to the world in, are as to the world in general as to Caesar. In other words, why do you assume that this has anything to do with me? This is happening in the heavens. You know, this is to the whole world. Not, right. It's not a message directly to me. And she says, when beggars die, there are no comets seen. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're the ruler of the Roman Empire. Right. The heavens if, themselves right. blaze forth the death of princes. Yeah. So if, she if puts the, it on the office. Right. But he's thinking of it as an individual. He's thinking of it personally. Even his right. response to her is personal. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. So he's saying, I'm not afraid of the portent of the death of princes because I... So I think he's owning... His own personal, because I'm brave is basically what's in cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death, but once. That's a great line. 
It is a great line, a great line, which again, in true Shakespeare fashion is subversive because he's about to die. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> yes. he, he should have been listening. That's why it's subversive, right? He should have been listening to these signs, which are against the office of the Caesar, but his response is, but I'm a brave man. Right. So I think he is making a personal decision to go in there with a little bit of his middle finger up. Well, and Calpurnia seems to sense this because at line 50, she says, do not go forth today. Call it my fear that keeps you in the house and not your own. Right. So right. she seems to sense that he's saying, I can't go because I don't need to look scared. Right. And she says, well, because of this, she's sensing that in her husband. And she says, well, just tell them it's my fault then. Yeah, that's, I've I've never read this scene this as closely as I'm reading this now, and I'm, I am very swayed towards the. This is more pride, evidence of pride in Caesar. Here, you have to read it both directions, though. Of course, you do. That's but you the can rule. Also, we just made that rule. The whole, last, <laughs> last so, so what? Okay, so you okay, be the, the other, other side. Then. Yeah, you be. Let's you be the one to say no, no, no. He's protecting his office. I already said my side. So that that's just your whole side. All right, say it again yes. so we can pretend to care. I mean, so we can hear you no, out fairly. No, no, that's not what I mean. No. What I mean <laughs> is that is that you. It's not written in a way that we can come go through a passage and say, nope. In this particular passage, it's Caesar this way. In this other particular passage, it's Caesar this other way. It's it it's always Caesar both ways. <coughs> mm-hmm. But don't you think there's a dichotomy between the personal Caesar and like the private Caesar and the public Caesar? Or do you really think they're unified man? No, I don't. Wait, which one? You don't think they're unified? I don't think they're unified. So I think that, that that's kind of what I'm getting at here. And I don't want to speak for Brian, but that that in this case, if he because there's such a dichotomy between those two parts of him, the private man, the public. And he goes to such pains to communicate to everybody around him that he's always just Caesar. He's always, he's, he's a public man. I'm making even this long speech about I'm the fixed North star that he gives in this scene, right? I'm not going to change my mind about the banished man because I am, I never change my mind. I'm always just, I never listen to my feelings. I always just, go with what I think is right and is for Rome. But Please, if that was I'm true, over on my left side, because right. I'm this but year. if that was true, I think he would have stayed home based on the portents of the deaths of princes. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't still don't see how that follows. And here's why I think that, I think that if we want to read the passage at, with Shakespeare, the tyrant or Shakespeare, the tyrant also true. Um, <laughs> Right. With Julius Caesar <laughs> as the tyrant, then what we get is a passage where we see um, a, a man, a person with great pride and ambition. And so we see him being prideful and ambitious. But I think if we're reading it, the flip side, the other direction, where we see where we're reading it with Julius Caesar as a a good person trying to fulfill his office properly, in accordance with what that office should be. Then we read of a person who cannot stay home 
in this scene, he cannot stay home because it would being a bring a it would be a disservice to the office of Caesar because it would cause people to discredit the role the office of Caesar. And so he still has to go to the Senate in yeah, either direction. I can see that. I think that's a fair argument, especially if he doesn't believe the signs, especially if he thinks that they're as he's telling the truth that like whatever, I just I'm the master of my own fate. I have to go be Caesar at the Senate. I I think that's fair. But but I also don't think that he is always very clear which person's doing the controlling. Totally right. Like there's, I I mean, to think of it in a in an awkward way, like a schizophrenia. But um, he's not always sure which one, which personality is in control. Just in the same way, like in you know one of our favorite shows, The Crown. I Mm. think that I think that Elizabeth doesn't always know when she's responding with her personal emotions and when she's responding as in the office of the queen, she can't right. always tell the difference. Yeah, between how would two. you? Right. Um, but let me, let me try to play peacemaker here. Between Good, these. I'm going to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about Heidi, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> that, that got you all heard it me. listeners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that whether we see him responding as Caesar the office or whether we see him responding as Julius, the the person, I think we can clearly see though that regardless uh, or, or as a unified person, right? I think regardless, we see him responding out of a place of pride. Yes. I, I oh, think pride that's for true. self or pride for office. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. One or the, sure. mm-hmm. whichever, or yeah. whatever voice he's speaking with, it's right. still a very proud voice. Yeah. Um, and Pride for office is a little bit more forgivable, though. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. If it's if he's doing this out of a sense of duty, right? But I feel like there are too many comments, particularly when he's disregarding Calpurnia. Comments, Com- comments. Kind of work. It does. Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> um, I feel like there are too many things that he says that hint that. He's doing this um, out of a sense of pride, either for his office or himself, that's causing him to disregard what should really be some obvious cautions. Um, Yes, agreed. And I think that that makes this tragedy that's about to take place to him, this scene is what makes his death sad. That's... Is, is remembering this like Shakespeare really I mean this scene this whole act is really kind of on the nose like there's lots and lots I mean overdone omens that Caesar is going to die it's really a lot and mm-hmm. some people criticize that in the play but I think it's beautiful because it gives this sense of weight to every word in this whole act what kind like of person would criticize that well people say it's just too obvious Right. It's, it's so, it's, it's just too much. It's too on the nose. It's not worthy of Shakespeare. Who's a very, who's subtle. Isn't it obvious because we all knew the story of Julius Caesar before he wrote the play. And so, well, yeah, and that was Brian's point. Else, you, not a surprise, yes, right? right? Well, you, the question is of pride. We keep talking about that. The question is what in the world would make someone go to the Senate if they know they're going to get killed that day? Like everything points the, to that. the belief that the office can't die. 
Right. So again, it's either virtue, that sense of like the, the, for the good, for the glory and the good of Rome, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it. Right. Or the question of pride or kind of a mingling of both, which is actually more human. I never know when I'm doing something virtuous, if I'm doing it because I am virtuous or because, and I love what is good or because I'm prideful and I want to be seen as good. And I think that that is very clear in this play, the the mingling between those two, the signs and the portents, the universal things going on is, is not the focus of the play. The play is on how the characters respond to that and they ignore it. Hmm. We um, are closing in on our hour. So Hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to, change the subject completely and point out one of those things that Heidi rejects exists in this play, which is a Christian element to the story. Um, Cause that's how I remember your comments. You reject that there is any Christianity in this play whatsoever. Um, I just am having the best time. This is so fun. <laughs> Act two, scene two, we're still there at the end. Caesar says in line 134 in my copy, which is probably going to be line 129 in your copy. Um, good friends. Go in and taste some wine with me. And we, like friends, will straightway go together, as he says to Judas. Mm. Let's, in, mm-hmm. let's participate in the Last Supper together. Yeah. Huh. Except it's breakfast, but whatever. <laughs> wine for breakfast. That sounds very Roman and not Christian at all. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you guys both lost me. Now. <laughs> um, so you're seeing a sacramental image here is what you're saying yeah yeah well so now I think you can defend that yeah. now you're saying caesar's a christ figure if calpurnia's whole conversation with Easy him there buddy point, point us in that direction <laughs> this I is think, probably him as a christ figure is probably how an elizabethan audience would have seen him because boom. they so that I don't think you're wrong in terms of the cultural context of it. We have to understand that we as Americans see Julius Caesar completely different than the medievals did, who made him one of the nine worthies. Hmm. He was revered and beloved as an imperialist. Dante kind of liked him. Yes. Well, and Dante put Brutus and Cassius with with Judas Iscariot in the ninth circle of hell being chewed up in the mouth of Satan. So, which, oh my goodness, I have to. Can I? Um, I'm I'm gonna say this. I think he's okay. Let him talk. So, (laughs) (laughs) you get to the very bottom of the pit of hell in Dante's Inferno. There's no spoilers. Satan, if you haven't read it by now, you don't deserve spoilers. Um, Satan is portrayed having three, three faces three mouths in each of the mouths is a sinner Judas because he betrayed the Lord mm-hmm. um, Brutus because he betrayed I think the Lord because he betrayed his friend the other mm-hmm. and and Casca or Cassius excuse me because he betrayed his country yep um, and they're all being eternally chewed which to come back to Matt's point everything in how Satan is portrayed in Dante's Inferno is an anti-type yes so you have the anti-trinity right with the three faces and you have the anti-communion meal with satan eternally consuming those who serve him whereas christ gives himself as food to those who serve him um right so uh, whereas christ died 
for us, giving us his body and blood, um, Satan consumes those who serve him. And so if there is this Christian element here, as far as the uh, Caesar and offering wine to those who would betray him, it's also in Dante. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I do. Th- I, 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 like I, I think it. that, no, you, I think you did nail it. I, if I didn't uh, think it would mess wine, up. Yeah. Good. That's that, good. It'd be a good spot to just drop a mic. Wouldn't it? I would totally <laughs> drop this mic, but I think David would get mad at it me. It would mess up the recording. He might get a little mad. We broke the studio. <laughs> but it was a really, really good point. So <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> um, act three, Artemidorus comes out and notes, t- lets three. us know. Sorry, yes, yeah, three. I know, I Ar- did the same thing. Artemidorus comes out and lets us know that he knows what's going on and that he's going to expose the plot. And then in scene four, we have the scene that we kind of started talking about at the beginning with Portia and Lucius. And I just, I just have, I have one question about scene four before we close the show. Do you guys think at this point that she knows Mm. the plot? That's just, it's a debated point, you know, because I read Shakespeare commentaries. (laughs) This is a debated point among Shakespeare scholars. Um, Scene one, I don't think she does. Right. But scene four, scene, yeah. I think she does. What do you think? Yeah. What do this, you and the scholars think? Hi, Day Day. Um, I think that it, it, you know, it's, I think you can make the case that she does or does not. Again, I'm, I'm not, I don't know that, that this one I'm willing to take a stand on. Um, kind of like, <sighs> does Penelope know that the beggar is Odysseus, right? You can read it multiple ways. Does it, it, right. The, the story works really well if she does. The story works really well if she doesn't. At the very least in this scene, Portia knows that something bad is happening at the Senate. Um, and if that's because of her restless night uh, and the weird way her husband was acting, that make that the story works with that. If it's because she somehow has found out along the way, then that has a different kind of pathos to it, but it works just as well. So I don't know that I'm willing to take a strong stand. What do you guys think? Well, uh, my tendency is to think of it as um, sort of her intuition that mm-hmm. she she suspects what's going on, but she wants him to confirm it. And then um, because he won't talk to her, she's talking with, Lucius and even the soothsayer. So uh, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think of it as being her suspicions. Mm -hmm. She, she has some idea what's going on, but she doesn't know for sure. So when she says, Oh, Oh Brutus, the heavens speed thee in thy enterprise, Mm -hmm. thine enterprise. Mm -hmm. Is she just saying he's my husband, whatever he does must be right. So heaven speed him or, is she saying, Brutus, I know what you're up to. Heaven speed him because it's the right thing to do. That particular line hmm. is the that is the case that she knows for sure. And and maybe always knew and is just try even in scene one, she maybe she already in act two, scene one that we already talked about, that that particular line seems to indicate maybe she knew even then and was trying to get him to tell her so that she could speak into it. But as a good mm-hmm. Roman wife, couldn't say that without sounding as though she betrayed him. 
right. by knowing something that he didn't tell her. Well, there's there's also could be not to, to argue for the opposite side. Sure. Um, there could be an echo, a parallel to Act Two, Scene One with Ligarius in my line three fifty five, y'all's line twelve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, uh, Ligarius says, or sorry, three sixty. Ligarius says, "Set on your foot, and with a heart new fired, I follow you to do I know not what, but it sufficeth that Brutus leads me on." Right. And Brutus is like, follow me then. Um, so <laughs> Ligarius, you know, well, it kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, a confirmation that Cassius and Casco were right to invite Brutus, that his very presence was going to help the cause. Yes. And then shortly thereafter, Ligarius is like, I'm in. I don't even know what I'm in for, but if Brutus is in, I'm in. I'm just happy to be a part of it, guys. Yeah. I want to be, I want to be part of the yeah. cool kids club. <laughs> but then, but then that could also be an indication that that Portia sees her husband in that light. And so right. at the end of that scene four, Portia's simply kind of echoing the same thing. Like, Brutus is a good man. If he's doing something, it must be something that heaven should be behind. Perhaps. Right. I, I want to throw out this one potential thought. Well, it is a thought, but potential, uh, a possibility is that um, we've already mentioned, though, that both Calpurnia and Portia in their respective situations and conversations were more perceptive mm -hmm. than Brutus and Caesar were. So I, yes. I tend to think that yes, Portia did know and she was trying to get Brutus to talk to her about it, whether or not she would have said, yes, this is a good idea. It's for the good of Rome, do it. Or she would have said something different. I don't know, but I, I tend to think based on um, the perceptiveness that we see, in these two women already that she probably did know. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. sorry, Patty, do you want to add a closing thought there? No, I think I was going to say, I think that that may be a stronger case, but it's just not, there's no way for her to have learned about it in the play. And so that's kind of the argument on the other, on the other that, right. that Shakespeare could have put some kind of scene or a couple of lines in there to indicate how she would have known. And so we're just reading too much into it. That's kind of the argument on the other side of that, that, mm -hmm. that this is just another portent that she has based on her restless night. Sounds like those scholars were single. <laughs> yeah. Wives, wives, you know. wives know stuff. We know. We don't always say what we know, but we know. So, <laughs> Well, like all of the best fables, let's end this show with a moral. <laughs> oh good let's not men join us next time listen to your wives <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a not necessarily one, a bad one and yeah. wives be willing to share yes well listen right. to your husbands that was cool that yeah. was um i mean i don't know i'm not gonna say it was on fire or anything but it was totally it was. On fire. If someone wanted to say that, that we would accept cool. it yeah <laughs> please feel free to leave any compliments about these shows any criticisms, send them to David Kern. <laughs> Anonymously. No. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Compliments <laughs> Compliments directly to us. Critiques directly to David. Well, then he'll shut down the show. Don't do that. Just, just, just forgive us. No, there's, a special, there's, a special, um, there's a special email address for complaints. <laughs> Trash at CerseInstitute.com. It's a recycle bin now. Gosh. All right. Brian Phillips. Thank you. Heidi White. Muchas gracias. You're welcome, sir. Mabianco. 
Thank you, Matt Bianco. Pleasure working with you as always. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk again next week. And bye. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.